Hello, everyone. I'm Tech Sergeant Shane Hughes, and I'm your host for this episode of Beyond the Horizon, a podcast produced by the Ohio Air National Guard's 178th Wing in Springfield, Ohio. Today's episode is the first in a quarterly series where we'll feature books on military leadership and interview the authors of those books. To kick off this series, we've chosen Leadership is Language by L. David Marquet, which releases tomorrow. In 1981, David graduated top of his class from the U.S. Naval Academy, an institute renowned for developing leaders to serve the nation. Thereafter, he joined the submarine force. He was selected to command the USS Santa Fe after its captain quit. Santa Fe was the worst performing submarine in the fleet and a different type of submarine than he commanded in the past. While in command of the Santa Fe, he began treating his crew as leaders, not followers, and giving control, not taking control. It wasn't long before operations took a dramatic turn and the Santa Fe went from worst to first, achieving the highest retention and operational standings in the Navy. He retired from the Navy in 2009 and is now the author of Turn the Ship Around. You can learn more about his story and his books on leadership at davidmarquet.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. David, welcome to the show. Hey, Tech Sergeant Hughes. Thanks for having me on your show. And uh, welcome to all the 178ers out there. Can you start off by telling me about your experience aboard the USS Santa Fe? Yeah, sure. Well, I came up through the military, like I said. Um, I went to the Naval Academy. And as you all know, it's a place where you, you get rewarded for doing what you're told and telling people what to do. And the better you are telling people what to do, the faster you get promoted as long as what you're telling them to do is the right thing. So I had this whole uh, idea of leadership, that leadership was giving orders, being clear and concise, uh, maybe giving orders in a way to let them think it was actually their idea. But it was basically about controlling people and telling them what to do. And then uh, I got, because I was so good at that, they promoted me to submarine commander. And uh, you, you go to school for a whole year learning your ship. At the very last moment, I got diverted to the other, this other ship, the USS Santa Fe, which was the worst performing ship in the fleet because the captain quit. Was, that was how bad it was. But it was a different kind of ship. So I go down, all the buttons are different, but I'm still like the captain, so I still tell people what to do. And it didn't make any sense. And immediately, one of the officers, it kind of comes to light because the officer repeats an order that I say, hey, why don't we do this? Is basically like shifting into second gear, but we only had one gear on this particular motor. And the sailor is like, what? No. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that really rocked my world because in the past, it was about giving better orders. If you made a mistake giving an order, you wanted to give better orders. But that was not a feasible solution. What I needed to do is figure out a way so that I didn't have to give any orders. So I made a deal. I'm never going to give another order. And what I needed to do was lean back and the officers leaned into me and then the chiefs leaned into the officers and the list of guys leaning. And so everyone was leaning up and saying, here's what I intend to do, which meant you had permission unless we stopped you as opposed to here's what I'd like permission to do, which means you don't have permission unless someone says yes. And that was revolutionary. And it, it was really a trick to get people to think, get them involved, get, give them ownership, get them to think. 
and get them to be responsible for their decisions. Yeah, that's a real unique style of leadership. It's really revolutionary. Well, it really transformed. It was out of necessity. It wasn't some grand plan. It was just panic and fear. But uh, <laughs> um, the, the remarkable thing was yeah, we set records for performance and retention and morale and that kind of thing. But more submarine commanders came from that ship than any other ship. Ten submarine commanders came from that small roller, which was a really highly disproportionate number. And so what happens is you treat people like leaders, let them think like leaders, then they become leaders. That's the natural way. If you act, treat them like followers, do what you're told, yeah, some will squeak through. But basically, it's not, it's not, you're not respecting the humanity in people. Wow, that is a really amazing accomplishment, having so many commanders come from one single ship. So um, there's a lot of wonderful advice in your new book, Leadership is Language. So your new book focuses on red work and blue work. Can you explain the difference between red work and blue work, what that is, and how the industrial revolution has shaped our views on those two types of work? Throughout the day, you're, you're going to engage in two different kinds of work. And throughout your life, I, I would submit. One of them is doing. One of them is action. You're flying the UAV. You're re replacing a motor. You are prepping something for flight. You are conducting training. You're doing something. You're, it, the key word doing. You're, this is where you're a can-do organization. But we need to balance all that doing with thinking. So once we're done uh, flying the UAV, we debrief it. We think about it. how to go. What could, what could be better? This is thinking work. And it really uses the brain in a different way. With doing work, I want to be focused. I want to be, there's a sort of active engagement with uh, the world around me. And I don't want a lot of distractions. And I don't want a lot of variability. When I, when I replace a motor, I want the connections all made up properly in the right way. Every time I replace that same motor, I don't want one person to do it one way and someone else to do it something else. So the variability is an enemy to this doing, but variability is an ally to thinking work. When we say, well, what could be, how could we make this better? You want to widen it. You want to cast, you want to look left. You want to look right. You want to raise your head up. And so there's this sort of head up, relaxed, uh, typically it's quieter, uh, engaging view of the world. And that uses your brain differently. So these two different kinds of brain activities, this, awesome, this rhythmic dance between thinking and thinking and then making decisions and then doing and being focused is what you want to balance. And if you get that balanced right, then you get learning, you get adaptability and agility, and we activate the best part of what we are as human beings. If you do it wrong, you can do over-bias one way or the other. A lot of organizations are overbiased for doing. They're just do, 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 do. They don't, they never, they don't improve it. They can't think about it. And the next thing I know what they're doing, they're doing what they're doing perfectly, brilliantly, except it's just totally irrelevant. F-16s no longer matter. So we need to ship to UAVs. It's not that they don't matter anymore, but you know, the world has changed. Uh, so someone says, oh, you guys need to change. But if it, absent that external forcing function, many organizations don't see it themselves. And so uh, or company after company goes out of business. Everything's going fine, fine, fine. It's not like gradually. They go fine, 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 boom. 
what happened? And so that's why you need this balance between red work, which is focused, and blue work, which is broadly, uh, broad perspective. And they require different languages and different ways of management. Why is it important to find a balance between thinking and acting? Well, if you're doing too much acting, you're not improving the process. Let's say you're a manufacturer. You, got, you have a process for prepping a UAV. Every day, every month, it's the same. And uh, if we never think about it, well, how can we make it better? How can we make it faster? How can we make it more efficient? Can we stage the tools in a different way? Then 10 years from now, we're just doing the same thing. And so we're not getting better. So it's the thinking that gets us better. On the other hand, if all you do is think about something, you're just sitting in your room going, hmm, you never, two things. One, you don't actually do anything. I know some people like that. And number two is you don't actually learn whether your idea works or not. You say, well, you know, we could move all these tools together here and that might make things a little bit more efficient, but you don't know until you actually do it. So to learn and advance, you need to go back and forth. Idea, try it. How'd it work? Idea, try it. How'd it work? Idea, try it. How it works. How did it work? And that's what's going to power the organization forward. Early in a process, let's say you got, you got the, we just shifted from six F-16s to UAVs. We don't really have a lot of experience. So early in the process, you want to focus learning. So maybe we only do a week's worth of, of maintenance, and then we get together and say, hey, how'd it go? And then we make some tweaks, and then, then, then hey, let's try that for a month. And we make some tweaks. Oh, let's try it for three months. Let's make some tweaks. So pretty soon... You, have, you can do more and more and more of the doing, but you still, like maybe once a year or whatever, once a quarter, you still want to pause, release the pressure of the clock and say, hey, how are we doing? How can we make it better? Yeah, I believe in your book, you would describe that kind of as a staircase, correct? Yeah. So people use this word continuous improvement, which I don't think is actually correct. Continuous improvement would mean every time I, I work on the um, on the machine on the UAV, I do I tweak it, which is not what you want. You want to stabilize the process so it's incremental improvement, and you want to do it once, then three times, then seven, then nine, then twenty times, and uh, and then so it's a stair step. So we're doing, 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 doing. Pause, improve. Doing, doing, doing. Pause, improve. There's more improvement at the beginning. There's more doing toward the end. Okay. So one of the things that really stood out to me while I was reading your book was this concept of share of voice. What is share of voice and how does it affect team performance? Uh, share of voice and team performance. So the idea behind share of voice is, is simply this. What percent of words does each person say? And we measured some different groups. And uh, you, you can do this using transcripts, like cockpit transcripts or ship, ship transcripts. And it turns out that the most common pattern is the person, the most senior person says the most number of words. And you can map seniority to the number of words. Now, this is not the best way to run an organization because all, all we're doing is hearing the senior person's voice. And the senior person already knows what, what he or she thinks. So what we're doing as leaders is we're anchoring the group and we're bringing people around to our way of thinking. Now, you may need to do this after the decision is made, but beforehand, you really need to know what everyone sees and thinks before you contaminate them with your thinking. And the way is by leveling the share of voice, by letting, by saying, oh, uh, tech sergeant, you've been a little quiet. How do you see this? And because you probably are seeing it differently, and then you're like, 
yeah, but I don't want to speak up because I seem different and everyone else seems to, yeah, everyone else sees, see, sees the same thing, but I'm seeing something different. I must be wrong, but you may be the one who's right. All innovation starts from those different thinkers. Now, Share Voice had a pretty big impact on the El Faro, which features prominently at throughout your book. Can you tell me about the El Faro and what lessons it can teach us about the language of leadership? So the El Faro was a huge container ship, 790 feet long. In 2015, left Jacksonville, Florida, headed for Puerto Rico. There was a hurricane brewing in the Atlantic. And even with all the modern equipment and weather systems, sailed under the hurricane and sank and all 33 people lost their lives. The government recovered the black box. So we have the transcript, a 500 page transcript of what was said. We know what they were saying to each other. We know, uh, we know there are two critical points where they had, the ship had an opportunity to divert through the Bahamas and go onto the safe side of the Bahamas. And two different officers called the captain about two hours apart. And, and when they call the captain, they sound like this. Well, uh, we could, you know, I mean, it's not looking good. We're, and it's sort of, it's very hesitant. It's very deferential. It's very... Um, it's sort of weakly tempered and it's ineffective because the, you basically, in both cases, there's this pause and then you hear, okay, click. So the captain hasn't asked any questions, hasn't said, tell me more about it. And then, and then you say, well, why is that? Here, these people are making what turns out to be a life and death decision and that's all they get. Well, when you look at the whole transcript, you can see these patterns. Basically, the captain is done doing what I did for most of my career, getting people to go along, convincing people that he's right. Hey, it'll be fine. We're going to go this way. I wouldn't have it any other way. The ship can take it. I mean, this, all this kind of talk. And people then comply and they go with it. And in every case, when you look at the uh, conversations on the bridge where there's a three three person team, the captain, the officer, and the seaman, every single time, it's the same pattern. It's uncanny. The captain always says the most number of words. The officer always says the second most number of words. And then the seaman, very few words is a big drop off. And the idea is as leaders, your job is to let it make it feel safe for everyone to speak up. And, and you probably think you do, but you probably don't. Because whenever you speak first, you don't. You just made it harder for someone else to speak up. One of the main concepts that you covered was inviting dissent. Why is it so important for leaders to invite dissent? And what are some methods we can use to deliberately introduce dissent into that blue work phase? There's a famous study that comes from way back in the 50s where psychologists put people in a room and they gave them two cards. One card had three lines on it, different lengths, and the other card had one line. And you're supposed to say, well, that line, which of, which of those three lines is the same length as the, is the target line? And people thought, oh, I'm in this group, I'm in this thing together. And they had seven people typically, and then we'd go around the table and people would say, the right answer is, let's say it's two, line number two. And they would say one, 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 one. In other words, all six people would say the wrong answer. And then the last person would be like, what? That's weird. I, I... And a third of the time, they would then say the wrong answer because the other people were part of the, they were, they were stooges. They were part of the study. And what happens is that's the power of the group. Now, when, now they did a twist. They said one, 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 three, one. So in other words, one person disagreed with the group 
still said the wrong, uh, a different wrong number. And when that happened, the spell was broken. People just uh, in a very tiny amount of cases said the wrong one. It doesn't matter that you, someone agrees with you. It matters that someone is able to voice dissent in the group safely. So your groups will be anchored by the first person who speaks, will be anchored by what we per perceive the commander already wants, will be anchored by group conversation. And in order to stretch it, remember, blue work, thinking work benefits from embracing variability. In other words, the more different the opinions and the ideas, the better. We're going to have to settle on a course of action eventually, but at the early part, we want and so we want broad ideas. That's why we have to invite dissent. We have to make it safe for someone to dissent, even if it means you got to stage a dissenter at the early part of, part of the days. And then later, uh, it becomes embedded group culture and you don't need to do it anymore. But being able to say, oh, here's someone dissent, disagree with the group or disagree with the commander. And then here's the next question. What happens next? What do we do? What do we do with it? that person. Oh, John, you know, we've gone over this. Look, we, we, we've talked about this a million times. Why? No, we, the group need, then needs to be curious. What does this be a person see that I don't see? What do they know that I don't know? And let's, let's see if we can uncover that. Then we're going to make a decision and we don't need to agree with them, but we may modify the decision based on what they're telling us. But over and over and over again, we know from groups, someone in, uh, someone in the, in the group, knows something, it doesn't see the light of day, and the group makes a bad decision. One of the techniques that you had talked about that I found very interesting was the idea of introducing red and black cards to the group to mandate dissent. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this was really funny. I did this in China. I had this big, uh, I was with this big uh, global uh, leadership team for a huge uh, Chinese corporation. And I had these four tables of executives and <clears throat> I, I gave them this little video and I said, well, describe what you saw. It was from master and commander. So it had those old sailing ships. And I said, well, how many sails did the ship have up? They didn't know I was going to ask the question. And then here's, you have two minutes and there's like, boom, 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 boom. And then I said, two minutes are up. What do you guys think? First guy stands up. Oh, well, uh, uh, we've had a harmonious conversation, blah, blah, blah. And there were five sales. Next guy, next table. Okay, thank you. Next table. Guy stands up. Oh, we had a harmonious conversation. There are five sales. Next table. Harmonious conversation. Five. Yeah, you see where this is going. So I said, well, that's great, but you're all wrong. Turns out there's seven. I said, I'm not going to tell you how many. I'm not going to show you the video again but I'm going to tell you, A, you're wrong, and B, we're going to pass out these cards. So at each table, we gave them eight black and two red cards. If you had a red card, that, that meant you had to disagree with whatever the group was saying. And I gave them another two minutes without any additional information other than the fact that they knew five was not the right answer. The new numbers were seven, eight, seven, eight. The dissent helped them get closer to the truth harmonious conversation where we all die because we don't know what the truth is because we think there's five enemy and there's seven or whatever the situation is. That's not what we want. The truth is what we want. And so by making, and, and so the trick is the card makes it safe to disagree because you're like, oh, hey, uh, Juan, you were sort of uh, aggressive there. It's like, no, 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 it was the card. You know, the card made me disagree. So it's about making it safe to disagree. That's what the cards do. All right. So one of the other concepts you had talked about is escalation of commitment. Yeah. What is it and why is it so dangerous? Escalation of commitment is a psychological phenomenon that human beings are prone to 
whereby if we have made a decision in the face of information that the decision is going badly, we typically double down. Uh, the phrase uh, "poor good money after poor bad money after good" is based on this idea, and and there was some interesting original work that was done around the uh, the escalation of the Vietnam War is sort of a classic uh, case of this. And so, what you want to do is separate the decision maker from the decision evaluator. Now, in most organizations, if the senior person makes the decision, then they they're also the evaluator, but the problem is you're asking that person to evaluate a decision that they've made. And so they become victims of this escalation of commitment. And then that's when the whole group goes down. But if you can create an organization where say the second in command or the department heads are making decisions and the most senior person only has a brake pedal, never is not making decisions, pushing things forward, then they can remain aloof and they have a much better independent assessment and when they see hey you know we've been trying this for six months it's just not working well the person who made the decision is gonna be like no we can make it work we're just gonna double down we're gonna try harder it's like yeah no we're gonna try something different you'll you'll have fresher eyes and you'll be untainted if you can separate the decision maker from the decision evaluator that's why it's so important that's why this idea of intent is so important is because we say hey here's what i intend to do the team is telling the leader the commander what they intend to do not the commander telling the team what it, what he or she wants them to do because then the commander has now tainted themselves and it'll be very difficult for the commander to dispassionately evaluate their own decisions. You actually preempted my final question. Oh, that's good. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I have one more question for you and it has absolutely nothing to do with your book. Are you ready? Yeah, sure. Go Navy. <laughs> <laughs> what book has had the biggest impact on your life? Oh my gosh, so many books, but I'll tell you, um, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is a brilliant book. Uh, I read it sort of during a dark time in my life. It, it turned turned things around for me. Um, I'm going to give you a couple. For uh, Another one, here, here's one coming out of the blue. How to Talk to Kids So Kids Will Listen, How to Listen So Kids Will Talk. Brilliant book. Every parent and anyone who deals with humans should read it. <laughs> It's I have a toddler, so I'll definitely yeah. be checking that out. Oh my gosh, you got to read this book. And it, and it just shows you how it's just like changing the words. You don't have to agree with someone and, and you don't need accepting their emotions and just changing their word, your words. And I did this with my kids and it was genius. And then I had, I had it locked in my top secret safe on the submarine because I didn't want this, my crew to think I thought of them as kids. But there were... It was the ge it was the ger germ of so many um, seed germ of so many of the ideas that I had. Uh, so that's a genius book. And then Carol Dweck's mindset, where she talks about growth mindset versus um, a fixed mindset. Very. Power I have this huge pile of books next to me. I don't know if you can see them. I can turn the camera, but. Uh, yeah, just read. Um, and, and by the way, give yourself permission if you start reading a book, in, including mine, <laughs> and it's just like, you know, I'm just not getting anything out. Put it away. Put it away and do something else. There's so much out there. For the, for the, for the price of a couple lattes, you, you'll get hundreds and hundreds of hours worth of work that are really, really, really um, uh, valuable for you. Leaders are readers. All right, David, thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today.
That concludes today's episode of Beyond the Horizon. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you subscribe and leave us a rating and review. If you're looking for more ways to connect with the 178th Wing, you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also write to us at beyondthehorizonpodcast at gmail.com with any questions you have for us or even stories of your own. And until next time, keep your eyes on the horizon.